Welcome to the Estate Planning 101 series, an informative podcast brought to you by Discovery. Each episode will guide you through all anyone needs to know about leaving a legacy for their loved ones. It's also an educational tool for you as advisors to help navigate the conversations you have with your clients and to make those more beneficial. I'm your host, Bruce Whitfield. Join me as I chat to leading experts and professionals for insights on all the important components to consider for a well-rounded, hassle-free plan, as well as learning to better understand the human side of it all. After all, estate planning is as much about human lives and all the complexities that go along with it as it is about assets and money. In today's episode, we delve into what estate planning entails and why it's so important for all our lives. Welcome to the Estate Planning 101 series. It's nothing that you want to do. You don't want to sit down and ponder your own demise, but it's something that you need to do. Joining us today, Harry Joffe, the Head of Legal Services at Discovery, and Claire von Veik, who's a Discovery Financial Advisor. Claire, let's start with you. What exactly is estate planning. Why is this concept of contemplating our own mortality so important? Yes. So estate planning, like you said, it is definitely not the first thing anyone likes to contemplate. But I really think it should be, especially given this recent period we've been through with COVID. And so my positioning of estate planning to my clients is simply put, It's a way we kind of leave a love letter to our loved ones to say, you know what, I thought about what may happen if I pass and I have a plan that I have put down on paper that you can follow like a risk management process and it's going to be able to make things a little bit easier in the event of me passing. So that's my view on estate planning. It's it's highly, highly important, especially families with uh, spouses that are dependent, uh, children, and, you know, not to forget people that are in business together. It's quite a vast subject, and it takes a lot of consideration and planning to make sure you get the right elements all in place. I mean, the, the key components, what are they? You say it's complicated, but of course, there are multiple components when it comes to defining this final document, that uh, this little memory of yourself, this love letter, as you call it. So the key components of estate planning, I would say, first and foremost, you start with the will, which is a document which details what your idea and plans are around your assets and gives details around the dealing of your assets, the tax um, thought on it. Are you going to use something like a testamentary trust? Do you possibly already have a trust set up, an inter vivos trust? Have you uh, thought through who the beneficiaries are going to be? Have you uh, thought through if you are going to be setting up a trust, who you would like the trustees to be and what is the amount of authority and power you wish to give to them? The concept of a living will is very important nowadays. The idea that you've already thought about what your family needs to know in the event that you are in a position not to make up your mind about your well-being is really disturbing, but it is something you need to think through. So there's a lot of elements that go into it. I, I won't put it as complicated. I think you can keep this as streamlined as possible, 
But I think a lot of the times nowadays we we cause it to be a lot more complex because of trusts that come into the mix of things. But I think always keeping it simplistic makes it so much easier to deal with an estate in the event of someone's passing. You see, when you make things simple, then you mean that people like Harry Joffe aren't needed. And he gets very offended by this, the head of legal services <laughs> and discovery. Uh, Harry, I mean, what Cleb was using there was a bit of terminology. And again, I'm sure you buy into this idea of simplicity because a lot of the language around this sort of stuff is quite intimidating. Intervivos trusts, testamentary trusts, vested trusts, discretionary trusts, a thousand kinds of trust. Does the language hide the complexity or is it? What is it? Russo, sorry. First of all, I must jump in. Claire spoke about a love letter. I have to tell you about a, a lovely will I had to check yesterday because there was a bit of a dispute with an investment that this trust held from the estate. So I had to check the will. In the will, this old lady who had passed away left to her brother 250 rand, the grand total, to go and buy dog food to feed two dogs. Now, isn't that a, a love letter of note when you leave 250 rand in a will to your brother? I think she was maybe making a snide and sarcastic comment behind the scenes. One of my favorite lines that I don't know if it's in a will, but certainly I want to put it in mine one day if somebody annoys me. You know, and to Johnny, who said I wouldn't remember him in my will. Hello, Johnny. And then move on. Um, It's that kind of thing where you can have a little bit of fun with your will, I suspect. Well, Bruce, do something better. Leave your Man United shirt to someone. That's what I said. (laughs) I don't hate anybody that much. But Bruce, okay, so onto terminology... As Claire said, you can have two kinds of trust. You can have what we call a testamentary trust, which is created in the will and only comes into being after you die when your will is read. Or you can have an inter vivos trust, nice fancy Latin terminology, for a trust set up while you are alive. I'll give you a simple example. If there's anything wrong with the will, so the will is invalid or not signed properly, or if it's even disputed by heirs in court and it gets blocked, then, of course, the testamentary trust cannot come into being because its finding document is the will, and then everything grinds to a halt. So a testamentary trust is better than nothing, but first prize, if the clients are able to afford it, is to set up an inter vivos trust. But again, either of the two will do a job. As long as the testamentary trust comes into being, then it will, of course, look after assets that come out of the will to it. And I must take the opportunity to say, Bruce, Discovery recently launched a fantastic new product, and one of the arms of the product is it will pay fees for a trustee on this testamentary trust, because it's all very well setting up a testamentary trust, but you need a trustee, and this trustee has to be paid for, and these fees can be pretty expensive, which isn't always made clear to a client. And this new product that we've launched, amongst other benefits, is it will cover a professional trustee, it's our preferred provider, for 10 years on that testamentary trust. At least the client will have comfort that the trust has been properly run and properly looked after. We we talk about trusts like they're everyday things. Not everybody's estate is suited to be placed into a trust. They're quite complicated things to manage. They're more expensive to manage. Uh, And you've got to kind of have a fairly decent asset base, I think, before you get into a trust. Or do trusts suit more people than we think, Claire? So just going back to the two basic trusts that Harry's brought up, the testamentary trust, which is in terms of the will and a inter vivos trust. I don't really believe that a trust is suited to everyone from a aspect of a 
into Vivo's trust because you may not have the asset to put into it. It may not make sense from tax reasoning. The transfer of your assets into a trust can be complex and can be costly. You, you know, to realize an asset, to sell it into a trust, you incur costs. So I don't believe a trust is suited to everyone. That being said, at death, having a testamentary trust in terms of your will, if you've got minors, if you've got someone dependent on you, is, in my opinion, one of the best protection mechanisms that you can have in place to be able to protect your family when you're not there to do it. So I agree saying an intervivos trust, not necessarily for everyone at every station in their life, but a testamentary trust, I think, needs to be well thought out and put into a will where applicable. Most of us don't have a will. And for the vast majority of people who do have a will, they don't necessarily have the wealth to justify putting assets into a trust. The important thing here when it comes to estate planning is to structure whatever affairs that you've got, Claire, in a clear and as succinct and as uncomplicated mechanism as possible, I would assume. 100% correct. I think keeping it simple, which is um, a motto of mine, but also taking into account all the elements that you need to with estate planning. Do I have liquidity? Am I going to be liable for estate duty? You know, I've got a quite an interesting scenario that my husband's ex-wife and her new husband actually are the guardians for my child. So, you know, I had to think through that whole scenario. Uh, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just again. <laughs> so my husband's... Claire, ex- let me help you. Let me help you draft that will. <laughs> so my husband's ex-wife and her husband, we have asked to be the guardian of my biological child because my husband has two daughters and then Joshua came along. And I cannot split him away from his sisters in the event of my death or Mark and I simultaneously dying. So there is a already complexity in that. And then when I had to sit down and say, well, you know, they're going to be guardians, but I can't just now ask them to look after Joshua and not give them some money in compensation for it. So I actually went to my husband and I said, look, I think if we die, we need to allow them to come live in our house, which is set up for all the children and they can rent their house out. So each scenario is very particular to your set of circumstances. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get across here is, you know, you cannot have one standard will that suits everyone or one standard scenario that suits everyone. You need to engage with a professional who has experience in this and is personal enough to be able to give recommendations that are going to make your scenario work in the event of your death. I mean, Harry, the point that that Claire is making is that this is not about you. This is about the people who are left behind. And there's an extraordinary amount of maturity that goes into making the sort of decision that that Claire and her husband have made here. Yeah, Bruce, I mean, I'll be honest, people talk about a simple will. I think very few people actually have got simple lives with simple wills because everyone, like Claire said, I mean, their ex spouses floating around, their children from various marriages, there's personal interfamily relationships. There's a whole list of affairs. I mean, it's really interesting. You know, when you look at the offshore world, and it's something we've been doing now quite a, a lot more because clients got offshore estates and offshore assets, there's a concept in the offshore world of an excluded person. So you can, in your trust offshore or your will offshore, say, the following person will never, under any circumstances, be able to benefit from my will or my trust. I mean, and that could be an ex-spouse or could be a child you've fallen out with. 
But these are complex issues. And I mean, even a, an issue like a testamentary trust for your child, you as a planner got to sit down and think very honestly with yourself, at what age is my child capable of handling money and handling assets? So even though under the law, when that child turns 18, he's theoretically a major and can be paid out, I always tell clients, you don't want to give your 18-year-old 5 million rand cash because you know where the money will go. You rather want to stagger it and you want to have different ages. Maybe 21, he gets some money. Maybe 25, he gets some money. Maybe 30. And you stagger it so you can plan carefully for what's good for the child or for the, the newly adult child. I mean, I even had a client who went a bit over the top. In his will, he said his son could only benefit from the trust when he turned 50. So that might be a bit extreme, but I kind of like the, the client's way of thinking. You've got to plan carefully and do what's best for the heir. And you've got to think honestly with yourself, when is an heir capable or when are those heirs capable of actually handing money and handing assets? There is also the balance there, though, Harry, of ruling from the grave, as so many families are left in a really difficult position because, you know, somebody in their wisdom has decided they should only benefit when they're 50. And the world's more complicated than that. And the world evolves more quickly than we could ever imagine. And once we're gone, it's going to evolve even more quickly. But I'm a bit uncomfortable with that, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I agree, Bruce. I mean, 50 is obviously a bit extreme. But uh, ruling from the grave is wrong if you try and control people. But it's not wrong if you try and look after people. So in other words, classic example, we had a client recently who had a Sarcad collection, and that was worth 10 million rand. So this client said to me very honestly, if he leaves his Sarcads to his sons, he knows what's going to happen. They're not going to water the Sarcads. They're not going to look after them. These plants will die, and 10 million rand will disappear in a very short time. So what he's done is he's moved those Sarcads into a trust, He's got a professional trustee managing the Sarcads. And when he dies, the professional trustee will carry on and the money will go to the kids. He's not trying to deprive them of money or benefit, but he's just looking after the assets for the good of the children. So it's ruling from the grave to an extent that is keeping control of the asset, but he's not controlling what the children do. And I think that's an important distinction. When it comes to some basic tips here, Claire, in terms of estate planning, I mean, what are your, when you sit down with somebody, what are the first three, four, five things that you say to them that they are the key considerations before thinking of anything else? Bruce, so the conversation will start along the lines of, do you actually have a will? Is it in place? And is it indeed signed? And off the back of that, does it include a living will or medical derivative? What are your thoughts on how you're going to protect whatever legacy you are leaving behind? How are we going to fund it? And very much focus on children. I really try to get clients to consider the impact of guardianship trustees if they're going to nominate trustees from their family or their circle of friends to be trustees. Harry's often spoken about this one concept and he's got some cute anecdotes about it, but digital assets, because we're living in a day and age now where people have got Bitcoin accounts and gaming accounts. Have you thought about those? Have you decided to put them in? Have you left them to anyone in particular? And what are your passwords? We we all password protected, left, right and center, but we forget to put our passwords down to allow people access to our online information. 
copies of all your documentation and originals. Do you have everything in a file? So those are my top probably six or seven rather than four that I really start going into with my families and my clients when I work with them. Harry, what happens if you don't have a will? I mean, it's a most commonly asked question and there are people who are apprehensive about going to uh, draw up a will because it almost feels like they're tempting fate and they're acknowledging the fact that one day they're going to die, which bad news for them, they are. Um, what happens when people do die without a will? The, the people who postpone to next week, next month to never actually getting around to it. So if you die without a will, then the Interstate Succession Act comes in and it's an act of parliament, a piece of legislation, and basically it sets up a pecking order of who gets what in that scenario. So it starts off if you've got a spouse and no children, the spouse gets everything. If you've got a spouse and children, then they share equally, subject to the proviso that the spouse gets a minimum of 250,000 rand. But uh, the problems that come up is, and it's something that Claire brought up, that if you don't have a will, you of course can't create a trust, you can't create guardians for your minor children, So the minor kids are not going to be looked after and any assets that accrue to them, particularly cash, is going to end up in the Guardian's Fund in Pretoria. You can't decide exactly what ratios, who gets what. So if you have a family member you wanted to benefit who's not so close in the bloodline, they will be cut out. Not having a will, you actually give up all control. You now rely on an act of parliament to regulate who gets what. And very importantly, Bruce, you can't choose your executor because then it's up to the master of the high court to decide who the the executor of that estate will be. Why does the executor matter? So it is important who the executor is, because the executor is going to have a lot of say in the winding up of the estate process. So for example, if you've got shares in your estate that you bequeath to heirs, the executor can decide to give them the shares or to sell the shares and give them cash instead. And that's quite an important decision. If you've got a spouse that you leave behind, the executor will have to decide if that spouse needs money to live off while the estate is being wound up, how much that spouse gets, how often the spouse gets money. And you'll find very often the executor has to act as a referee between family members if they're assets that have to be divided up. So for example, very common clause in a world, which I actually hate, is I leave my personal effects to my children to be shared equally. And then each kid wants the dining room table and no one wants the TV set. So that's what the executor's job will be to try and and act as a referee between the children. So it's important to think carefully who your executor is going to be. A professional would be best if possible because they can act impartially and they can do the right thing. But it's also important to make sure that you give guidance to your executor. I mean, that clause, I leave my personal effects to my children, is just too vague. You should rather say, I leave my furniture to my son one, I leave my jewellery to daughter two, no, be a bit more specific and give your executive some guidance so they can do their job properly. The consequences also of not having a will and getting your assets then divided equally amongst your immediate family will have tax consequences too, because as I understand it, you, your spouse won't have to deal with, with, with as many tax issues as your kids might have to. Well, Bruce, it's a little bit more tricky because remember, if you bequeath assets to a spouse, there's an automatic deduction in the estate for estate duty, the paragraph 4Q deduction, which is quite famous. So anything that you bequeath to a spouse is automatically free of estate duty at that level. So let's assume a husband dies first and he's got a million rand worth of assets. If he leaves it all to the spouse, then there'll be no estate duty on that million rand. But if he dies without a will and the spouse gets a third and the two kids get a third, then there could be estate duty on the shares going to the kids. 
So if you break it up three ways between spouse and kids, there could be a state duty, whereas if you had left it all to the spouse, there would have been no state duty. So that's an important issue to make. And then, of course, capital gains tax. You know, if you bequeath assets to a spouse, there's no capital gains tax at that level. It's only when the spouse dies or sells the assets. But if those assets are passing on to children, then there could very well be capital gains tax depending on the assets. And the importance, Harry, of liquidity in an estate. And I think a lot of people, you talk to people about the way in which they, they're dealing with their, their assets and they go, well, I've got life insurance, they'll kick in if I die and, you know, so I'll have a bit of debt. But the, the life cover will do that. The life cover will deal with the bond. It'll all be fine. And um, too many horror stories, I think, of it simply not being fine. Yeah, Bruce, people forget there's so many costs that uh, come out on a debt. So I'll give you three or four, just for example. There's obviously estate duties and capital gains taxes. There's winding up costs, which are quite substantial. So your executor will charge up to 3.5% of the estate assets plus VAT, which takes it to just over 4% to wind up your estate. So you've got taxes, you've got executor's fees, you've got all debts become due. So if you owe money or if you're owed money, those debts have to be paid because the minute you die, your estate has to be wound up. And then uh, there's other costs which are not insubstantial. There's things like transferring property. So though you don't pay transfer duty, you pay your conveyancing fees for property to be transferred to family. You pay advertising fees to advertise estate for creditors. There's a lot of costs that need to be paid. And then back to Claire's example, I mean, I really like using Claire's example of husbands and spouses and children floating around. You know, if you've got an ex-spouse, you could very well have a maintenance order that you have to pay that ex-spouse. And that maintenance order will carry on even if you die because that maintenance order normally runs until the spouse that you owe it to dies. So let's say the husband dies and he's got a maintenance order that he has to pay his ex-spouse she would lodge a claim against his estate to carry on being paid out of that estate. And then you need, of course, a big lump sum of money to be able to satisfy that maintenance obligation. So there's a lot of financial needs that arise on a debt. What else, Claire, gets overlooked? I mean, in this process of retirement and estate planning, what other sort of potholes are there? We know South Africa's roads are littered with potholes, and I'm guessing that the road to death has many as well. I think Harry's mentioned most of it, but I mean, I'd just like to reinforce one of the things that really gets overlooked is a signature on a will. I unfortunately have experienced it in my family. My mother-in-law passed away late last year and it it was a long-term illness. So we had quite a lot of time to prepare for it. And the long time advisor for my father-in-law had done everything, got everything set up. And when the will came out after the memorial service, it actually wasn't signed. And when we went looking for the signed copy at the advisor, he was remiss in actually getting it signed. And to to me, that was, you know, one of those cold ice bucket moments where you sit and you want to cry, you want to scream, you want to shout, but it is what it is. That is one of the biggest things. And I I had a meeting with clients that have been mine for probably 15 years earlier this week over Zoom. And they said, you know what, we made changes to the last version of our will that you sent us, but we forgot to sign it. Even though we told you we had sent it and given you a copy, we made changes afterwards. So that is very much the biggest mistake I see. 
beneficiaries signing as witnesses and a will leaving a will open to be contested is is really not a good idea or as weird as it might sound witnesses signing not in your presence so if the wills ever question they say well i never signed it while we were standing there so these are little things which can actually turn out to be very very big things but just coming back to what harry was talking about the estate liquidity to me that is where um, financial planning is so crucial because there's so many costs involved in this that, you know, you say you've got a life policy, it's going to deal with my debt. Well, it might deal with the debt, but you've got a maintenance order that's not being provided for. So we're going to have to sell the house that we've just managed to pay the debt off on. So it doesn't make sense not to do well thought out a financial needs analysis around estate um, planning. The product that we have launched at Discovery, the estate planning product is perfectly fitted in this direction where you can slot it into your financial plan for your estate duty and cover your costs and make sure that you're not going to run into that hole in the ground. I think just the one thing recently I've experienced in in one of my clients is um, an intervivos trust where it was demonstrated that the trust wasn't set up properly as well. So that tends to be one of the loopholes where control of the assets within the trust, as much as the client thought they had given up control, uh, they hadn't. So that in itself also caused a lot of complications in that estate. So those are the big ones that jump to mind when you ask me that question. Ruth, sorry, I've got, to, I've got to throw in a case here. There was a Supreme Court of Appeal case that came out very, very recently. Uh, I mean, listen to these facts. As a lawyer, I just rub my hands with glee when I hear it. And the client dies, he's got a will. He's got a will, signed, valid. The trust company gets his will. They start winding up his estate. They pay out to everyone. He's even got a business that they pass on to the heirs. The heirs actually mess up the business and bankrupt it. And then about a year later, it comes to life, there was a later will, which he had signed and done, which no one knew about, or people didn't know about it, they kind of conveniently hit the fact. So this later will comes now to light, and it turns out in the later will, there's a whole different set of heirs than the previous will. Now we go to court, I mean, you can just imagine the, the beauty of the debate in court, because now we've got a business which is bankrupt, which was paid to the wrong heirs, and should have been paid to other heirs. And now there's a question of who's legally liable. And then the lawyers start throwing in these beautiful legalese words, Bruce, Raven de Cartier, which is the right of a correct owner to reclaim ownership. And now we don't know where the assets go. and We don't know who gets what and how to unscramble the scrambled egg. And really, the, the Supreme Court of Appeal had to dig deep into Roman law, Roman Dutch law, and try and find out what to do and how to unwind this problem. And that's why it's so important one of our benefits that we've launched now is a storage facility for a will. So for 100 rand a year plus that, you can store your will with our provider and you can store your latest will. And then when you die, the original is stored in this vault, fireproof, uh, bombproof, waterproof, and there'll be no disputes that this is your latest and most recent will. And that's, again, a big issue. Make sure you're up to date, your changes are recorded and are known. It should be airproof as well. And I don't mean from the atmosphere, just from your, your airs as well. You've raised so many issues, both of you today. And I wonder, Harry, who in their right mind ever agrees to be an executor? If you're asked to be an executor of a will by your sibling or your best friend or somebody, do you run screaming? Do you say, look, 
I don't mind our earthly relationship going to pot over this, but I'm not clearing up your mess once you're gone. Leave me out of your problems. I'm not interested. How do you minimize your risk when being asked to do something like this? First of all, I think people underestimate that. I mean, I had a case recently now. A friend of mine, his father passed away, and he said to me, you know what, I'll just wind up my father's estate. That's a bit quick and easy. He nominated me as executive in the world. And I said to him, fine, go off to the master and see what happens when you apply for those letters of executorship, and then we'll talk. And after three weeks, he came back to me and he said he'd spent three different days in the master's office trying to get the letters sorted out, trying to get files done, and he's giving up. It's just too difficult for him. And I said, exactly, let me refer you to a professional executor who will sort this out for you and wind it up for you. And I think, Bruce, that's the first point. Winding up an estate is not easy. I mean, you've got to get through to the master's office. There's letters that have to be issued. There's documents that have to be issued. Letters go missing. Documents get lost. You have to go back and forth to the master. Going to the master's office is uh, in downtown. It's not the most pleasant experience always. It's not an easy process, number one. And number two, the master won't allow any Tom, Dick, or Harry, excuse the pun, to be appointed as an executor. You know, if you appoint your friend who's got no experience and knows nothing about winding up estates, the master can lawfully and often does reject that appointment and say, I'm not going to appoint you. So unless it's a spouse or a child, which the master will normally allow, anyone other than that, the master can reject. And I think, Bruce, that's a nice excuse to give. So if your friend asks you to be an executor, just say, look, I've got no experience in this. A, I won't do the job properly, and it will just take very long. Be the master might actually reject me anyway, so it wouldn't make sense. Look, I mean, you've scared the living daylights out of me, and I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast is absolutely petrified. Petrified enough to want to live forever because dying is expensive and complicated. How do we, as we wrap up, simplify this process, Claire, to make it as quick and as unobtrusive as possible? Because the last thing any one of us wants to do is make life difficult for those we leave behind. So in summary, Bruce, approach a professional who is known for doing this, get your will set up, make sure it is legal, is correctly witnessed and signed, good calculations, go and do the maths of what your death may mean. What is capital gains tax? Am I going to have to pay state duty over and above my abatement? Um, do I have a product in place that is going to allow for estate liquidity? Do the maths around it. Come up with a, a risk management plan for your death and Gather all your documentation and make sure there's maybe more than one copy of it. I always like to have two or three copies and make sure everyone knows where your will is and you inform your family who to go to when you die. When there's a death, it's a very emotional time. And, you know, I would never want to appoint my spouse, definitely not my husband, to wind it up because I don't think you'd want to, nor my children. But we overestimate how emotional families are. So making sure you've got that professional. My family knows there's one phone call. If something happens to me, uh, you take all the money out of my accounts and you go with it. And then you can start getting emotional. So very simple. Make sure your will is in place. Have your 
needs analysis done properly, have the products in place to protect you, all the entities structured, etc., to protect you, and make sure the documentation trail is sound and crystallized. Claire, thank you so much for that. Claire van Veek, who's a Discovery Financial Advisor. Harry Joffe, the Head of Legal Services at Discovery. Thank you for your contribution today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then be sure to look out for the rest of our series on all things to do with estate planning. Next, I'll be chatting to Gareth Friedlander, the Deputy Chief Executive of Discovery Life, as well as the human potential expert, speaker and author, Nikki Bush. This is sure to be a very interesting conversation around the human side of a tragic estate planning experience and how you can make it better for your clients. The Estate Planning 101 series, an informative podcast aimed at helping you better guide your clients through the process and is brought to you by Discovery.